everyone and welcome to Nature's Pulse. My name is John Lieber. In this show, we're going to review the week's environmental news as well as go over concepts that I've been exploring professionally and outline uh, updates to my career. The reason that I created this show was to provide what I think is missing so much in the mainstream psyche, which is depth and nuance. And I think by being able to deliver the information directly and go over some of these articles and just kind of outline some concepts that I've been thinking about, it'll allow me to um, provide that depth and nuance without any character limits or any time limits, as well as commentary that I hope will uh, be valuable and interesting to you. Those of you who do not know me, my name is John Lieber. I hold a diploma in ecosystem management and a certificate in urban forestry. Uh, I've been working for about eight years with a variety of different municipalities here in Canada doing environmental planning as well as um, doing consulting. And I will be starting grad school in January of this year over in Europe, assuming that COVID doesn't cancel it because um, the first semester has already been canceled, but we're hoping for the best there. So I'll bring you guys along on my journey and we'll learn together. And um, hopefully this will be of great value to everyone, including myself. And um, we'll try to do a, a, um, an episode every week. So let's start on this week's first news article. The first piece of news I would like to go over is that um, the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, published a new report um, in early September called The State of the World's Forest forests, biodiversity, and people. So they publish this every year, and there's nothing that's overly exciting in it, but I did want to go over the executive summary just because there's some um, there's some interesting points there, and it does give us um, kind of a renewed um, perspective and lens on how important um, the world's forests are and how they're changing and really just an update on what their current status is. So let's go over some of them. Forests harbor most of the Earth's terrestrial biodiversity. The conservation of the world's biodiversity is thus utterly dependent on the way in which we interact with and use the, world, world, um, the world's forests. So I don't think that's any surprise. Um, forests are increasingly being used for forest products, um, so it's changing how forests are, um, how productive and um, in which services they're providing. Forests cover 31% of the global land area, but are not equally distributed across the globe. About almost half of the forest area is relatively intact and more than one third is a primary forest. Yeah, that kind of makes me think about how um, in uh, developed countries, forest actually, mostly due to plantations and reforestation efforts, forest cover seems to be increasing, while in um, developing countries there is a deforestation crisis. You look at places like Brazil or um, South Asian countries where the, the deforestation in some of the most biodiverse forests is alarming um, and mostly driven by agriculture. Deforestation and forest degradation continues to take place at alarming rates which contributes significantly to the ongoing loss of biodiversity. So this just um, is, is um, it kind of 
amplifies uh, how every environmental crisis is linked. So people get caught up talking about uh, the biodiversity crisis, um, biodiversity loss crisis, and it's related directly to the forest loss crisis, which is related to um, every other environmental crisis such as climate change. Um, so they're all connected and I think that's one of the takeaways for, from that point. Agricultural expansion continues to be the main driver of deforestation and forest fragmentation and the associated loss of forest biodiversity. So I just mentioned that and it truly is one of the main challenges of our generation because um, agriculture now takes up some 35%. Um, I was reading recently of the Earth's um, land surface. So that's a lot and it's increasing all the time, um, trying, to, trying to balance the pressure of needing to feed our ever-growing population, but also trying to preserve these uh, delicate forest ecosystems. The net loss of, I'll keep you guys here, the net loss of forest area decreased from 7.8 million hectares per year in 1990s to 4.7 million hectares per year during 2010 to 2020. Uh, yeah, to 2020. So that's good news. Um, it's not a lot, but it shows that there has been some changes and some progress. And I guess I say that's not a lot because there's always room for improvement, but it is a lot. Um, having a few extra um, million hectares not be cut down um, per year is, is significant and we need to celebrate the wins that we get. So it looks like the trends um, are going in the right direction, which is good to hear. The biodiversity of forests varies considerably according to factors such as forest type, geography, climate and soils, in addition to human use. And this is important, I think, not for people so much in, in the environmental um, industry, because we all know the, the huge diversity of what a forest could be and what, what it means. But um, for people outside, um, elected officials or the public, there's, I think, a dangerous stereotype that all forests are the same. And that's certainly not true. Progress on preventing the extinction of known threatened species and improving their conserva conservation status has been slow. So we've seen some, some wins. Um, I know the California candor and a few other species have been saved from the brink of extinction, um, which is great, but there's just so much for us to do still on this front um, and it's urgent. So something that all of us need to uh, to, be keep, to keep our um, heads down and keep working towards solutions on. And then the last point of the executive summary here is all people depend on forests and their biodiversity, some more than others. So that's a really important point. Um, it goes back to this isn't an optional choice. This is um, the very, um, some of the very products that we depend on for survival. So everything is on the line here. So I just found that a really interesting um, report. There's a lot more here, but I just wanted to go over and skim the top so that we at least kind of bring it to the forefront of our thinking. Um, and that's it for this one here. Okay, so if 2020 has taught me anything, it's that everyone and everything is a scam. And 
this uh, this really also applies to the plastics industry as we're going to find out in this article. So NPR did a deep dive um, and some very um, amazing investigative journalism um, and they wrote this piece called How Big Oil Misled the Public into Believing Plastic Would Be Recycled. Um, so I went through this article and I just synthesized this uh, little summary, just a couple of sentences here. I said, recycling plastic doesn't work. It costs more to recycle than, than to produce new plastic and it's compromised. Industry poured money into the narrative that it was being recycled, despite knowing it wasn't. Less than 10% of all plastic produced has been recycled and analysis now expects plastic production to triple by 2050. So those few sentences are um, very pessimistic and I think a lot of people will be shocked by that. I know I personally was. Um, I knew that there was always a bit of a scam to um, plastic production just because I knew that it was less viable than we were told, but not on this scale. And I didn't realize that not only 10% has ever been recycled. So this needs to be one of the, the frontiers of sustainability if we're ever going to reach it because the plastics um, pollution problem is, is astounding and having incredibly negative impacts on our environment. So it's one of those issues though where it's also an opportunity because we have all of this waste, we just haven't found out what to do with it. So once we find out what we can do with it, maybe one day it'll be a resource. So until then, we need to put all of our efforts into finding research, um, funding research, and finding new ways how to use this, or at least manage um, manage it better. And um, we also need to um, try to mediate um, or neutralize any industry influence because it is wholly unhelpful, clearly because if we don't know what the real problems are, we can't address them um, how they need to be addressed. Okay, so moving on. Um, this piece was sent to me by a friend. Um, it's a paper um, that was published in Science Journal. As you can see, it's called The Ecological and Evolutionary Consequences of Systemic Racism in Urban Environments. And at first, um, I was pretty excited to, um, to get reading the article because so many social issues are indeed intertwined with uh, ecological, especially urban ecological issues. Um, but as I started reading the, the paper, um, I had many concerns and we'll go over that. But as you can see, ironically, um, it's published in a closed um, pay for access journal. So that's uh, semi-ironic for a piece on equity. So what we'll do here is we will go over to Sci-Hub, which many of you may know, and for them, those of you who do not know it, it's a good resource, but I hope that the CIA doesn't come arrest me for being poor. So here's the paper. Um, as you can see, it's quite lengthy, and I started just kind of reading it um, recreationally just to get the gist of it. And very quickly, um, I started having a lot of concerns. Um, and I'll go through them. Um, 
right now. I just wanted to give you guys um, kind of a concept of what the paper looks like. And there are some good parts of it, but um, there's just a lot of concerns that kind of uh, raises a lot of questions with um, this qualitative research. Okay, so let's just go to my um, summary here in the environmental professionals group. Okay, so by the way, um, I came across this article just after I did an environmental justice and racism um, listening session with the um, the Facebook group where we listen to people's stories about how they either experiences in the field, but also um, the consequences of disproportionate environmental impacts. And we'd have held a fundraiser for Black Millennials uh, for Flint, which is an awesome um, non-profit organization. So I would recommend everyone go and check out their um, organization and the great work that they do. But through that process, um, I did, had a lot of learning curve to go through myself and I wanted to just, um, it kind of was the context for when I came across this article because I thought it was setting it up for some deep and nuanced research into these um, types of challenges that um, communities of color can face. But there's just a danger in, in having preconceived notions and putting it forward despite the data. So let's let's look at my summary here. The dark side of environmental justice. So through June and July, I explored the concepts of environmental racism and justice by reviewing the research and speaking with many people, as well as coordinating the environmental listening session and fundraiser, fundraiser we had. So there's a lot of substance to the concept, and it is indeed important we immerse ourselves in the consequences of disproportional environmental impacts. It must be brought to the forefront of everything we do. What I learned, unfortunately, is that like climate change, it's become politicized. I started to feel this over the summer when I received messages pressuring me to speak on certain equity topics or post certain things, threats to leave the group because I don't speak enough about certain topics and a huge upticks in accusations of what assist I am. So this is a difficult situation as is climate change. In my opinion, it's our duty to to, to contribute without getting caught up in the noise. Easier said than done as we've found out with climate change. And that's when I came across this research paper. To me, it embodies the noise. They seem to be letting their preconceived narrative lead the paper rather than the facts. And it's concerning as it made it through the peer review process when it should be an op-ed. I've gone through a few of my specific concerns below, but it's the moment when I realized that the environmentalists and politics have now permeated into environmental science. Although it's rich in facts, it reads as an op-ed. It makes wildly overgeneralized assumptions and correlations. It's politically charged, opinionated, and just doesn't make sense in many aspects in my experience as a practitioner. So, I go on here to list the specific generalized um, my specific concerns as I was going through the paper. I really went through with a fine tooth comb, and I went through all their citations to um, make sure my concerns were justified. And I'll go through these in a second, but I just want to also say that it's not just because I disagree with this research paper, 
Um, actually, today I came across a research paper um, that I'll actually speak about next week. It's about zoos, where I, I do agree with the narrative that they are pushing, but it's the same type of thing where it's largely um, opinion-based, and that means not necessarily science-based. And when these are going to, into research papers, um, that concerns me that it's being presented as science. Um, even though I know qualitative research is an accepted um, practice, although it has its controversy, um, sometimes these opinion pieces aren't um, specifically identified as opinions. They're presented as science, and sometimes it concerns me. And I think that this is one of these papers, and I think it's, well, it's, I don't have to think, it clearly is very um, controversial for me to say that it's not science, but I just don't believe that the data um, represents all the claims here. Um, so let's get started in my specific concerns. So the first concern was overgeneralization. Um, this is an American article, and American cities have very different demographics, histories, and overall dynamics than the rest of the world. These variables change within each American city and each neighborhood. So how can we make honest generalizations about urban environments on a global scale as this paper claims to do? So one of the quotes, this is my second point, is that it says, social inequality is the unequal distribution or allocation of wealth and resources to a specific social sociocultural group such as such imbalances contribute to profound injustices so to me that sounds like opinion because equality does not always mean injustice of course i do not want inequality but it implies capitalism cannot exist without being unjust this may or may not be the case but it certainly seems an opinion rather than research Okay, point three, this is another quote. While we predominantly focus on the work from North America, the global Okay, let me start again. While we pro predominantly focus on the work from North America, the global While we predominantly focus on the work from North America, the global Ubiquity. While we prominently focus on the work from North America, the global ubiquity of social inequality and systemic racism across cities suggests our synthesis is broadly applicable. Addressing systemic and structural racism both in cities and in the scientific community is necessary to comprehensively understand urban and ecological dynamics, conserve biodiversity, improve human health and well-being, and promote justice in nature and society. So my point here is that the world is a very big and complex place and it would be nice to make this easy broad narrative but it's not based in fact. They do not address gentrification complexities, they don't provide citations of the many places that do not fit the narrative. So of course this does apply in a lot of places but it doesn't apply in a lot of places. So to make these very broad generalizations, I think, um, is just not accurate. Fourth point, another quote from the article. 
Incorporating structural racism into biological models should improve the predictive value, thereby allowing us to better estimate the true effect of urbanization on evolutionary and ecological change. So I just said, how is that actually quantifiable to integrate into biological models? And I don't actually know what it means or is saying. And I feel like it could probably um, just be a gesture and potentially harm the research project. Five, another quote, frameworks that consider systemic and structural racism as principal drivers of urban form advance our ability to predict how and which species may acclimatize and evolve for, for life in cities. My point here is that shouldn't systemic racism be verified and quantified before we applied it, apply it as a principal driver? See, that just seems to make sense, but there's all these assumptions this article is making and um, again, it's just not accurate. Six, another quote. Translating the concepts of in intersectionality onto the urban landscape can provide a more holistic understanding of the patterns and the processes shaping urban ecosystems. For instance, we may hypothesize that, that characteristic differences between indigenous ecological practices and forest land managers may contribute to the variance in native species richness and community complexity. Similarly, we may predict that gender differences in land, cultivation and homeownership, plant species and species turnover rates, further vegetation removal, increased nighttime lighting to deter LGBTQIA plus communities, may have subsequent effects on disturbance regimes and local biodiversity and reduce habitat valuable for multi-species, though such empirical links are currently speculative and not well established integration of various inequities in cities may provide additional resolution to understanding how social drivers impact urban ecology and evolution. While we focus on racism and class, we must recognize the need for to encourage encourage intersectional approaches in urban ecology. So my point here is if you set out to find these correlations, you must set out to find all the variables. You find what you're looking for. So you need to look for the opposite as well. If you're only geared towards the perception, perceived oppressed subsections, that's probably what you're going to find. And then therefore your research will be biased. So you need to look at um, that the array of subsections, if this is what what you're going to be focusing on to not um, include biased um, research. Seven, another quote, origins of environmentalism in the United States were heavily influenced by white men who expressed racist perceived perspectives in their efforts to protect nature. Writings from early environmentalists like Aldo Leppard, John Muir, Madison Grant, Grifford Pinco, and Theodore Roosevelt argue that nature is more pristine without human influence, but should be reserved for white men as a resource for personal improvement. Um, so yeah, I just asked what everyone thinks of this into the, uh, um, I guess the main issue that they are talking about is how Muir 
influenced the tragic displacement of Native Americans for the creation of the 230 million square miles of national parks created by Roosevelt. So clearly that's a wrong decision um, to be um, exiling the natives from the the natives or from the national parks. Um, but you know, apparently from that citation, um, it was a Vice News article that talks about this um, these alleged writings from Muir and uh, Roosevelt, and it talks about how MLK and Gandhi also had similar views. Um, but I don't think that we call them racist. So. I think there's just something to consider um, with how the thinking was for them. <clears throat> Eight, a new quote, reallocating municipal funds to initiatives, improving home ownership for minoritized communities, reduces displacement and promotes local stewardship, which in turn impacts overall public and environmental health. And yeah, this is one of the more concerning quotes. Um, what I say here, I said, I think it could work in some communities, but it's definitely an opinion and should be more case specific. There's a lot of stakeholders that are involved in the urban sphere, and there's gonna be a lot of opinions on whether something like that would wor actually work or not, because it's, um, it's very um, fluffy and nice to think about but it's uh, not always gonna lead to those results which, which it claims to lead to. And it just misses so many um, nuances and specifics on how complicated um, the urban sphere is, especially when it comes to things like gentrification and um, minoritized communities. Nine, the maintenance of societal integrity should in turn lead to capital gains for minoritized communities that translate to ecological sustainability that positively impacts species diversities in cities. Again, it misses so many nuances of city building and is so over oversimplified and unfortunately probably wrong in almost all cases. 10, another quote. Then this necessarily means eradicating efforts that perpetuate inequities to knowledge access, neglect local communities' participation, or exploit community labor in the pursuit of academic knowledge, what is the practice of colonial and parachute science. And then this is when I just talk about the hip, hip, um, how hypocritical the academic stream and industry can be as a whole, because literally, as you saw, I had to go, I went, wanted to read this article, but because I don't have special access I, and I couldn't afford it, I had to go to this Russian website and break into the article just to even get the information. So they're talking about pursuing um, how important equity is and all these different factors and how they are so um, conscious of this information. Meanwhile, the very systems that they have been um, that they're part of are probably the single reason that we have so many inequities and almost a almost a, a proxy caste system in the West is because of academia. So quite ironic that they're blaming um, other things. So the last quote here 
is we cannot generalize human behavior in ur urban ecosystems without dealing with systemic racisms and other inequities. Yes, um, that can be true, but we shouldn't generalize human behavior in urban ecosystems, which I believe this paper does wholly. So it literally says, do not generalize human behavior in your e urban ecosystems, yet it says that there's structural racism in every city across the world. I don't know. So like I said here, as a conclusion, I remain committed to bringing a light to the very real issue of environmental justice and racism, but I'm concerned about papers like this that seem much more opinion and political than fact-led. So there's no shortage of these articles going around, these um, research papers, and I do fear that this is just the tip of the iceberg for what's coming. Um, and it's not with bad intentions, I don't think, but we can't be afraid to find balance and that's what I try to kind of wanted to create this show for is to to seek balance and not be seeking for a narrative or for clout but to be seeking the truth and that um, is a complex thing and it's not always what you want it to be so if we're willing to accept that then we can pursue the truth. Okay, so the other major news has been the wildfires happening out west, and um, I've seen this, uh, or I saw this arc article circulating quite a bit from Valerie Trowett, and um, it's done really well. I know she's a, a leading expert um, in the field, and I found it interesting <clears throat> because really what it gets to is that um, more fires equals less fires. And um, equals less fire, so we need to talk about fire suppression um, and how that <coughs> has uh, caused these giant um, fire events out west. But um, as I posted this article in the Environmental Professionals Facebook group, um, there was some good conversation here that kind of provided a little more insight into it. And it's true um, what Rob says here. So he says, not exactly news though, is it? I was taught this 30 years ago at university, but what the article doesn't say is why fires have been suppressed. Basically because whole towns have been settled in former wilderness areas and building codes allow timber construction. It's one, say to th it's one thing to say more fires mean less fire, but quite another to deliberately set fires which then claim lives, livelihoods, and settlements. So why? What is the way back from this now that California is so heavily populated? And that's a great point. Um, we can't just look at the what, we need to look at the why. And he's he's definitely right in that I've heard um, fire suppression, fire suppression talked about for a long time. Um, but I knew that the Forest Service must have considered this and that there was different politics at play. So this makes a lot of sense what he was saying. And if we look down here, just what I said, um, I've also heard that the makeup of the forest increased the intensity of the fires. So like timber plantations of single species or even multiple species um, change the whole dynamics of the forest and makes them more fire prone. And then, of course, the climate change impacts. So <clears throat> my question to him was, I guess um, doing burns that can be controlled really is the challenge because um, certainly 
there are controlled burns, but when there's these tinder-like conditions, tinderbox-like box -like conditions, um, it's a huge risk to be undertaking these these uh, controlled burns. So um, that's something that uh, the research and best practices need to be developed in. Um, let's see what else was in the comments, because there might have been just this morning the concept of hardening our homes was discussed with NPR radio in relation to Oregon and California's fire. Art Ludwig, who was <clears throat> instrumental in changing the gray water codes, California is now. Yeah, so this is great information talking about how homes can be more fireproof. Uh, this guy's mad that I said potential climate change impacts. Sorry about that. Um, and this is the best part <clears throat> for me about the environmental professionals group is that you really get a lot of perspective um, when you post these types of articles because um, there's so many diverse professionals that can contribute to the conversation. It's definitely the best thing I ever did um, for my intellect was to get this group going and I encourage anyone who's listening to come over to the environmental professionals group and join it. Um, if you're not an environmental professional, you can join my, uh, or like my Facebook page, which is John Lieber Ecology Planning, and it's the same um, information gets posted there. Okay, Steve Burton, we know what would happen in the Burton, we know what happened in the past. We also now know how humans screwed up a natural process yet again. So what do we do now? We cannot just willy-nilly go lighting fires to burn off the undergrowth. As the article clearly states, there's now too much undergrowth. So at the present, burning it off is not a viable solution. But what we can study is the situation and, and, and learn what needs to be removed and when. After gaining this knowledge, we can go into the forest and carefully remove this material manually. That material could be then processed into usable goods. Everything from mulch to paper to manufactured wood that way the CO2 released into the atmosphere can be kept to a minimum. So I find this really interesting and Steve's a great um, member of the group. He has a lot of experience and it shows from his comments. Um, so, but I had a couple concerns about this comment and I'll show you here. So Rob Large, who has commented, who is the first um, commenter up here about, um, about the why, he says to that, that's one way of looking at it though it sounds very labor-intensive. Do you think the carbon sequestered, which let's face it, was in the atmosphere until quite recently, would offset the energy needed to make such clearance possible? Sounds like a little bit too much, like Donald suggesting it gets raked out. Fire is the natural solution, but it requires major changes in how housing is distributed, and that is not going to be popular. And then I asked, when the removal of the undergrowth lead to nutrient um, deficit in the forest. <clears throat> so Steve replied to Rob's comment and said there's no denying that any way that it, it is done will run into some large challenges, but there is a variety of brush and tree removing machines already on the market. But as you implied, they run on fossil fuels. The trick is to convert them to electric, which is not a large challenge for the kinds of equipment needed. To answer John's comment, which is mine about being nutrient deficient, the nutrients can be returned to the soil in forms other than ash. There is even a good possibility that the soils can be enriched even further than before. 
The methodologies that I'm suggesting are not there to mimic the natural processes. They are there as alternatives to the natural processes. Face it, we cannot have a world of 8 billion humans and natural processes too. This is where <clears throat> the major challenges lay. Our history show us millennial, millennia of humans trying to make the world a better place and constantly creating more problems than they have fixed. Any solution we must choose is going to have detrimental effects. We must both limit as many of the detrimental effects as we can at the onset and maintain a vigilant eye in the process to pick up the unexpected consequences as they occur. Unfortunately, our current economic and political system, this, this is near into impossible. That is where the role of the environmentalists have to expand outwards to not only deal with the scientific and technical challenge, challenges, but the social ones too. So in essence, these fires can be seen as beneficial. Yes, the short-term effects are catastrophic, but as a tribute to the lost lives, not only of the humans, but also the flora and fauna, they can be used to alter the political and economic landscapes. And I love that. Very well articulated. Um, I still was concerned about the nutrients. Um, I said, if the nutrients are not returned by ash and the organic material is removed, meaning there is not a returned by decay, how then is it returned? And Steve replied to that saying the organic material is returned either as mulch or some other processes. <clears throat> so what Rob said though to that comment was, we cannot have a world of 8 billion people in natural processes, really, because without natural processes we are effed, seriously and properly. Stop looking at this as purely engineering problem and start to view as an ecological, physiochemical and biotic problem. Engineering thinking is what, what got us into this mess, it will not get us out of the climate extinction crisis. We need to start living within the bounds of our biosphere, not pretending that we can build machines to fix everything. <clears throat> and I said to that, I actually kind of agree with Steve. Although we need to work with nature, not against it, without some sort of human intervention, engineering, it can be difficult to manage society as it exists today. It's certainly important towards more sustainable methods though. And then Rob, just the last comment in this thread, I mean, Steve, what he said to Rob is kind of the final closing out. He said, I started out looking at this as a biological problem, but that was 50 years ago today. In the intervening years, I learned that the major source of the problems was supporting the large number of humans and their lifestyles. In 1900, there were approximately 1 billion people on the planet. At 1 billion, we were already causing widespread devastation upon natural resources and the attendant natural processes. In the 100 years since they have increased our population eightfold, while those same self-same natural resources have decreased, I wholeheartedly believed with, agree with you about being effed without the natural processes. That is how I have viewed us for decades now, effed. And my hope is that enough humans remain on the planet to at least carry our lineage forward. That is what I strive and fight for. I seriously believe that we can call civilization, what we call civilization, will be gone by the end of the century. The only way I see of preventing this doomsday scenario is by drastically reducing the human population, but that is considered to be unethical and publicly shunned by all. Therefore, the use of science and engineering as a stopgap measures to slow down our race to our own demise. So that got really philosophical really quick, but 
very well said and very important, I think. And I think we can pretty much end it off there. Um, there were, well, let's see what G. Thomas says, because uh, he was the first um, person to be interviewed on the Environmental Professionals show, which is the other show I do interviewing um, environmental professionals in the field. And he is an amazing person, a writer, environmental writer. So he says, I have lived in Southern California for six years, and I can tell you, land mismanagement is the driving reason for these disasters. Controlled burns are important, but it's not just that. There are regulations against grazing animals in certain areas. Restrictions over clearing brush in the state, forest land, and other factors at play. I was in Southern California during the major 2006 fire that swept about 40 miles across the five miles from the ocean, and they tried a controlled burn at Camp Pendleton, which got out of control. The key is to do these during the right times when humidity levels are high, ground moisture is ample, and when proper preparation is done to protect nearby structures. Unfortunately, politics at play is the biggest role, and therefore leaders bury their heads in the sand until something bad happens when they try to shirk the blame. Plenty to go around. Unfortunately, no one seems to be willing to accept the responsibility to move, move forward. So he does a really good job of um, outlining these complexities, and you can see that the issue is much more complex than even Valerie had done um, a good job of uh, outlining in her article and definitely more complex than the one uh, sentence essentially more fire it means less fire sentence that I had summarized it as to be so um, there's a lot of um, issues here and certainly they need to be addressed because um, California is one of the most populated states with a population greater than all of that of Canada um, needs to find a way to be sustainable and um, it needs to be comprehensive and uh, holistic. Okay, so here's the last article of the week that uh, we'll talk about today, or for this show. So it's another Guardian um, piece, and unfortunately, um, it I've used up my uh, my amount of free articles, so I guess we're not going to go over this one completely. But um, it's a really optimistic piece, and it's always good to see the optimistic um, news come out when it does. Um, and it's just an analysis about conservation efforts and the impact they've had um, since the 1990s. So here it says right in the title, up to 48 species saved from extinction by conservation efforts, study finds. Extin extinction rates from birds and mammals since 1993 would have been three to four times higher without action. So it's nice to hear that, but to actually understand what that means is beautiful to say the least and um, really meaningful especially when you look up some videos and pictures of these beautiful species just like this pygmy hog um, in India I would definitely encourage anyone to go watch YouTube videos of pygmy hogs especially if you see a litter of their babies it's the cutest thing ever um, a couple other species they mentioned here's the California condor the Iberian lynx um, there was the Puerto Rico parrot, something like that as well, um, as well as uh, the horses in Mongolia, and I forget the species, but um, it's just amazing 
what conservation has done um, since 1993 and uh, what it's meant for the species. So I don't have too much to say on that, um, but it really is so optimistic to hear this kind of important work uh, or important um, these important findings to come out and show us how important um, how important our work is and and what it's doing and it's encouragement to keep going and it's also an encouragement to um, continue to fund uh, conservation projects so that we can have these types of uh, impacts because once you see that there's a return on investment that's when you know it's always time to double down, triple down, and quadruple down, and, and urban planning, and sustainability, and just I need to uh, to vent them um, a little forum to do that. And um, for this week, uh, I really am been thinking a lot about, and it's completely changing everything for me, not only in the way that I see um, sustain the sustainability movement, but also about. Um, where I'm going to be taking my research, um, what, how successful sus the sustainability movement's going to be. It's really going to change everything. Uh, so what it is, is just how COVID is changing cities. Um, I think everyone's aware that um, because we're all working at home, I think uh, uh, probably logical guess is that we've moved at least 10 years ahead as far as adapt, um, adapting to technology. And relying on technology and relying less on traditional working infrastructure like commercial real estate and I have spoken to quite a few urban planners and uh, and building designers and I feel like the impacts are being underestimated on how it's going to change our um, not just urban landscape but the greater um, landscape as a whole and I think there's two things happening. Well, the first is that cities are very expensive to live in and businesses and people don't like to spend money for no reason. So we've already seen a huge exodus of people moving from the city to the countryside, um, including myself. Um, I work for a city government, but as soon as this all happened and I saw that it was gonna be going on for quite a while, I moved home just so I could live cheap um, have be be socially distanced, have the access to nature. Um, it all just made financial sense, and I, I know a lot of my friends have a lot. It's just um, a lot of people in the industry have not just from the city I, um, that I live in, but in other cities. Um, so it's a it's a general trend, and it's happening very quickly. Now, when COVID is over, I think there will be people that move back into the city and I think there will be people that always want to move into the city but it's going to be very hard first of all for businesses to justify commercial real estate um, and there's a lot of talk about that I think that's in the mainstream pulse that it's coming but I think what's not in the mainstream pulse is that people still have this they're clinging on to the idea that Oh, we'll just come back to work in the office once a week or a couple times a week or maybe um, we'll work for a whole week and then have a week off kind of a, um, a mixed approach but the thing is if you are a business owner or you are <coughs> actually the person running the books um, keeping tabs of the finances you have to look at it and say 
It's nice to be able to meet in the office, but it's not necessary. It's really not. And how much are you willing to pay for that? It's nice to have. Um, I think a lot of people are willing to do it up to a certain point, but when you're in the middle of a city, um, like downtown Toronto, downtown Seattle, San Francisco, New York, where commercial real estate is just out of this world, it's incredibly hard to justify um, that nice to have. And I think that a lot of businesses are gonna say, I'd rather take the money. So when you take the, the, the dynamic of amalgamation away from cities, which is what the sustainability movement had been um, completely relying on because people wanted to be amalgamated for economic reasons and it benefited the sustainability movement because we could share energy, we could share electricity, we could um, build densely so that we weren't building out onto natural areas. Um, that's why even today, the built up areas are only some um, two to 3% of the world's land surface area and compare that to agriculture, which is up to 35%. So that has um, benefited us in a, an amazing way. The other restriction that we face right now, um, and I've seen it myself as I um, about to go to grad school in Europe and that we'll be pursuing research opportunities all over. Um, the, res the restriction to wanting to go wherever you, you know, far away from the city, even if you have an, um, an online um, job, is that internet is still limited to built up areas mostly. I mean, it's across the states, it's across Canada, but it's not as fast out in the rural areas. And it's still pretty sketchy. Um, in some of the, you know, if you're in those remote areas. But everyone knows that remote internet is on its way. And it's not only that, but you hear about 5G. Um, and that, I think, is something that isn't being considered enough how these two things coming together can impact um, how we are going to live. Because what I think is coming is a dispersed dispersal of... Uh, of how we live, of our communities. Because people do love nature, people do love being out um, in remote areas, but the problem was that you would have to go to the built up areas to find work. So when you really consider these two um, factors coming together, um, I think that the sustainability movement is gonna have a lot of challenges um, and how to moderate that if we do disperse because we're gonna be building into um, way more natural areas and it's not only that people are going to have the money to do it too because they're going to have their good jobs and not <clears throat> and then as an additional consideration they won't be staying in their one country either because people with just me me medium wage jobs can move anywhere in the world and that means a lot of pristine natural areas that exist now i think will have a lot more development pressures so these are things I think that are not just gonna emerge. I think they're gonna bust right through the glass door and um, it, we're gonna have to deal with them really quick. So it's important that we start thinking about the consequences of the dispersal, dispersal of our communities right here and right now and how we can address it. Uh, so other thing I can't get out of my head is the freaking Montreal Protocol. Um, I always knew about it, but it's just 
the more I find out about it and the more I learn about it, I, I it's uh, really hard to explain how I feel like I get chills down my spine and I don't feel like it's celebrated enough because so, so in 1985 is when they discovered the hole in the ozone layer. Within those two years, between 1985 and 1987, there's a whole lot of things going on. First of all, people were scared because scientists were warning ozone depletion means UV exposure, which would risk the entire human population. Um, but also on the other side, industry was putting out um, inf misleading information on what was the cause, although scientists had quickly identified that it was CFCs. Um, but in the span of just two years, by 1987, the 197 countries had come together and signed the Montreal Protocol to phase out CFCs. Um, they saved the world. And uh, yeah, it's a big deal. So here's a little tech talk I did on it. In my head, I don't know what to think. Came down to the ground and pulled out a ring and said, Marry me, Juliet. You never have to be alone. I love you. In this last segment, I'm going to leave for questions. I don't have any questions right now because it is the very first episode. But if you have questions, please leave them in the comments. If you are listening to the podcast, then go to uh, the YouTube channel, which is Jungle Capital, or just type in John Lieber. You should find it um, and leave a comment with what your question is. And I'll make sure to answer it in the next episode. Or if you're on Instagram um, TV, I think I'm going to post it there. You can also leave a comment there with your question. And I'll make sure to answer any questions, controversial or not, about um, nature and sustainability. And we'll talk about it next week. Thank you guys for tuning in to the first episode of Nature's Pulse. I'm John Lieber. You can reach me on Twitter, which is at jungle underscore capital, Instagram, which is at jungle underscore capital, or join, uh, like my Facebook page, which is John Lieber Ecology Planning. And if you are an environmental professional, head over to the Environmental Professionals Facebook group. Thank you, guys.